Today, I'm traveling back in time with UCLA Dr. Amir Shahat to discover what ancient Egyptians ate and learn about how the scientific analysis of food remnants can tell us the stories of how ancient Egyptians lived. Join me as Dr. Shahat explains how racism and gender inequality intersect with archaeology and how by studying what is left in the stomach of mummies over the centuries can tell us how much fiber we should eat. So great to have you join us today. I met you last winter quarter in the Food Studies Colloquium at UCLA that I was teaching, and you brought such a unique perspective to the class with your research in Egyptian archaeology. The first week or two of class, you were actually still in Egypt on a dig. Can you share with our listeners what you were doing there? Yes, I, I was excavating an ancient Egyptian site with colleagues of mine. And this is in a central part of Egypt, uh, in the Kena region, north of the famous Luxor area. And this is a place where the Nile bends and gives a quick access to the land route to the Red Sea and uh, interactions for long distance trade, uh, whether going down in Africa, um, like Eritrea, Ethiopia regions, or crossing the other side for Indian Ocean trade. And that region is actually very important for me because uh, my father comes from that region in Kuna. Uh, the second significance for this site for me is that I am interested in social history. Uh, most of the time when we write about ancient history of people, especially from feminist perspective, we we think of famous queens like Cleopatra and Hatshepsut and these people, and we give little attention to history of women and contribution of history in other ways. So I wrote a proposal to UCLA Center for the Study of Women that we still can say the history of women from non-elite classes or not famous tombs. And even if they don't have text, don't have big decorations in their tomb by studying the food remains that were buried as offering with them and by actually analyzing the body by scientific method like stable isotope on their uh, teeth and hair to know what water they grow up drinking, where they are from, what food they were eating and estimate their condition of health. And then after actually taking two classes in UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, one with Professor William McCarthy, and the second is your class. <laughs> it made a beautiful synergy that changed the way I think and I approach this very same data in a completely different way. It was my first introduction to learn about the gut microbiota and uh, how they are important for our immune system. Uh, it was my first lesson to learn about the traditional diet uh, rich in fiber was helpful to reduce gut bowel inflammation, which is like precursor for multiple diseases, obesity, uh, diabetes, and cancer. So I started to redirect my research to also ask health-related questions that serve modern uh, food sciences. My bridge here was a critical article published by Zhang et al. in 2019, when he actually spoke about uh, the re direct relationship with uh, between fiber intake and the gut microbiota 
and the conclusion of his research that he recommended 40 grams of fiber as a daily intake as something to improve the uh, health of gut micro- the gut microbiota. And then I found other research actually published from the public health side finding the big difference between the traditional diet and the modern diet on the gut microbiota and hence the correlation between our pattern of modern diet, rich of fat and processed sugar and processed food, and the increase in diabetes, uh, obesity and intestinal tumors. I said, okay, let's see how traditional diet looked like in the past. I had the mommies preserved. I have the food preserved. So the first notice I had is that they had uh, most archaeologists from my side ignore the importance of wild plants in archaeological context. We overlook them. If we find them, we don't give them much attention of analysis. And we usually focus on domesticated plants that are important for modern economy like wheat and barley and how this was domesticated and how this was important for making bread and beer. But then I found that the wild fruits and wild nuts and indigenous to a region in Egypt or out of Egypt, they were never ignored. They were never dropped out of the diet. And it is only... And only in modern time, when we face this big advertisement of Western diet as the diet of elite, like having Western restaurants increasing uh, in New Cairo City, for example, in Egypt, McDonald's, Kentucky, and even Subway came over to Egypt. And right in front of the pyramids and the Sphinx, you have Pizza Hut and KFC. So only after this increased, now it is more denigrating if people consume these wild plants and wild fruits. People aren't eating as many wild nuts. Yes, and the connotation of eating them now is actually bad, socially speaking. What are the wild nuts and wild fruits? Great. A sycamore fig is one of the native fruits and also depicted in the wall of the tombs in ancient Egyptian associated with the goddess of love, goddess Hathor. I also discovered a lot of Christ's thorn fruit. It's a wild fruit native to Upper Egypt or the south part of Egypt only. We call it nabak in the local language. I also discovered many Persian nuts and they look amazing. (laughs) They look like fresh when I discovered them. They are pretty much extinct today or alarmingly decreasing. So every time I discover them, I feel like I really want to eat one to test what this fruit (laughs) tastes. I discovered two types of dates, two species of palm trees. The one famous for us is the date palm and another species of palm tree that has two heads and it is called dome palm. And this is native to the Nile uh, region. It grows along the Nile in Kenya, in Sudan, in in Ethiopia, and in Egypt. And it is part of the shared diet or wild fruit that grows along the Nile. And it stops in the south regions of Egypt. It does not exist in the north. And this plant, when I tried to test it in the lab, it pretty much soaked all the testing water because and, and the fluids because it is really, really rich in fiber. <laughs> 
What you're describing is so rich in information. How does this contribute to your knowledge building for social history, learning about all these different foods? That is a great question because in、uh, archaeology started in a colonial tradition and、uh, British and French colonialism before it. And basically, the consequences of this is still ongoing in terms of focusing on large tombs of famous kings and individuals or high officials. The history of other people who contributed, for example, the history of the pyramids workers' village, like there was a discovery of a whole village of workers. And the system, the social system dynamics of these workers who built the pyramids,、uh, but we don't see this celebrated、uh, neither in public literature or movies like in Hollywood. We only see famous figures. And then, beside the post-colonial stance in this research, as a native Egyptian, want to highlight the regional diversity in Egyptian cultures, even in ancient Egypt. And the diversity of the regions of the world that Egypt interacted with,、uh, for example, I discovered first evidence of watermelon in the same site, which is、uh, of origin in tropical Africa. With debate, some people say West Africa, and I also discovered juniper berry that comes from Eastern Mediterranean. So it shows you that Egypt culture interactions were, was、uh, with multifaceted. So after that, I put the feminist stance. I said, "Okay, I, I I TA here for a class of women in power with Professor Karakuni, and here is where we open the eyes of students to feminism, but in the past, with with the with the look into the past of how different women in different、uh, societies transcended social injustice and leveled up, and even some of them became in power. And this site is critical." This very same site where I show you these plants is critical, because the cemetery where I found this tomb is associated with the palace of a queen called Ahotep, and this queen has led a war after her husband died. We found in her tomb a symbol of flies, like made out of、uh, gold, and、uh, flies. You know how flies are annoying, but in ancient Egypt, when you find them in ancient tomb. It's actually a symbol of valor that this woman was known for her bravery and her valor. Why do flies have that symbolism? Because they are very persistent. If you come to Egypt <laughs> and you say the fly "go away," it tells you back "go away." <laughs> it's a metaphor, but it's really persistent. You like they keep coming back to you, so they are like insisting on achieving their goal. That's great symbolism. So, this particular so, person that was in this site you found was a person, a woman who was empowered after her husband died, and therefore, in history, would be considered a strong person.、Uh, what happened? I'm giving you the context of the site. So, I know the this woman owned the palace. But the tombs I、uh, excavated are the women that we don't know anything about their history. These were women associated with the palace, working for her, and they had、uh, graves or a cemetery nearby associated with the palace. 
but they were sl- small grave. We don't have any texts buried with them to tell me to tell us who they are. We don't have any clue on tomb decorations, for example. We don't have coffins that depicts how they looked like or their names. My argument is that by analyzing the food offerings like this, but we will not find them randomly. We have to look for them using scientific tools and being empowered with different research questions that uh, combine uh, social science and life sciences together. And in this way, we can serve understanding the social history of these women, and we can also serve modern food sciences and uh, concerns about food to the society today. So to land with that is I found here that this big diversity of wild fruits and plants that we used to eat and we give up in modern time have correlation with the increase in diabetes, high blood pressure and obesity in Egypt. And it was observed by other public health specialists in Mexico and uh, and here in Loma Linda in California, that traditional diet, which was more rich in fiber, was associated with less cases of obesity and intestinal tumors. Yes, that's a very long-term observation of change in the food system. And how do you relate your work to feminism? What creates your your hypothesis that there was feminism during those ancient times? Oh, what uh, what I'm speaking is that we are uh, making a feminist class today. Uh, we started it with same time of Me Too movement. Uh, Professor Cooney launched it in uh, UCLA. And uh, this research was just from my side to contribute to this class, to say, okay, we have some ancient data that contributes to our modern thought of feminism. And uh, one of the big honor I received is uh, UCLA Center for the Study of Women Award. It was last May in 2019. And it actually supported this research. Why was your research contributing to the feminist movement of our time? That is a great question. So now in modern time, uh, the feminist movement not just argue for the lack of recognition, but also the current feminist movements argue for the diversity of voices that needs to be heard. And some of these voices coming from a diversity of people who come from everywhere, uh, have different cultural affiliations, and we homogenize sometimes who they are. We homogenize them. We give them their names, for example. Uh, that is part of, of, of actually the intersection of racism and uh, gender inequality. And instead of knowing you from you, I know you by hearing about you, not knowing you by hearing you. So here I say, okay, in, in modern society, I would go to one of these women and I make an oral history. But how about this ancient woman who are buried here next to the palace and evidently contributed to Egyptian civilization in different ways. And we don't have anything about their history. For elite women, we have texts buried with them in their coffins. We have their coffins decorated with their names and their titles. We have them depicted on the tomb walls and saying who they are, what they were doing. But how about these women buried in a small grave? So my suggestion here 
was to use life science methods like stable isotope analysis and botany by analyzing the food species buried with them to know at least their identity, how they grow up, where they grow up. So striking data came out here. First, the food offerings buried with them showed that they ate the wild taxa of the region. So it gives me where they come from. And it also shows that they were involved in long distance trade while having imported food remains coming to them. And sometimes I found a gift coming from a royal to them, like a scarab or a figure inscribing a name of Queen Hatshepsut or King Tutmosis III. So it tells me this person was gifted something or had association with the elite or she has served something and she received a gift from the royal court. The second thing here, where I involved stable isotope analysis, basically I did oxygen on their teeth to know the water source where they grow up. And then luckily I have also the hair preserved. When I measure the oxygen, it tells me the uh, water source for the last few years where they lived. And another striking evidence happened. Some of them were Egyptians because the oxygen of the Nile River is very, very distinct than any other water source. And it is very rich or high in the oxygen 18. And some of the Egyptians were clear uh, when I did it on the teeth and hair, but some of them actually were not Egyptian. There was a striking example of a woman who grew up from Southwest Asia based on the oxygen in the teeth because the teeth gives me the water source for the first 10 years of your life. And because the hair remodels and you will cut it and it grow up again like one centimeter every month, I cut it month by month, one centimeter by one centimeter. And it tells me like, like her passport, where she was for these past years. So I have her food and her water source to know who she is, where she's coming from, where she died. So striking uh, social history unpack here. One final surprise for us from the life science side. I said, how about doing a stable isotope on the food to know the water source and the climate condition where it grow up with the food itself? Because it's the same thing. We are like walking plants. When I measure the oxygen and carbon to know the efficiency of uh, water used by the plants and the climate condition, I got very shocking news. I found that the ancient plants had uh, more grow up in a better humidity conditions. Okay, that's fine. Except for one juniper species that came from the Mediterranean and was imported. It showed evidence of high drought. But then all of the plants consistently showed evidence of very high and rich soil fertility based on the nitrogen isotope. And this, of course, determined the nutritive content of the food and their health and immunity. What is shocking, when I got the modern samples collected from the farms and the spice shops in the area, and I did them a test on them, I found them all low, very low in soil fertility, all of the plants that did after the construction of high dam. And the bridging uh, thing for me was a sample of wheat from the Charleston Museum taken right before the high dam, and it showed high soil fertility normally like the ancient Egyptian one. It is only after the dam where we see the terrible decrease in soil fertility level, 
and lower decrease in the uh, nutrition content of the food growing along the Nile. And why do you think the dam contributed to this degradation of the soil? That's another great question, Wendy. <laughs> Every July, the monsoon rain comes from Ethiopia, Eritrea regions, and fills in Lake Victoria, or the native name Lake Nyanza. And then it brings not only the water, Nile flood coming down to Egypt, but while bringing the water, it also brings rich minerals and clay all along. So we get water rich and oxy- high in oxygen 18 because it is coming from monsoon rain, not like in California or North California, coming from a snow melt. And it gives us also fertile soil that deposits on the both banks of the Nile free. We don't need to use any fertilizers. Sometimes they use dung of cattle and cows and uh, sheep and goat. And I discovered those dungs too in the settlement. But the shocking thing, after the dam, there is a decrease in soil fertility because this fertile soil is behind the dam now. We don't have access to it. We banned it. But the second shock is that the industrialism of food increased the use of fossil fuel-based fertilizers, and these are close to zero in their nitrogen isotope. So when I see lower nitrogen in my modern food samples, I know that, okay, there is here both evidence. We have evidence of lower soil fertility and most likely the use of fossil fuel-based fertilizers. So I have a couple follow-up questions on that because I, I I'm not actually that familiar with the differences between monsoon rain quality versus the oxygen that's in the H2O of the rain from California. Yeah, what's, what it, explain to me what that means. That's a great question too. Usually, most rivers in the world get their water from rain or of snow melt. So the water source is coming from a cold source, from a snow melt. And the heavier isotope will have a different oxygen isotope, oxygen 16. And oxygen 18 is most studied in water research. And oxygen 18 is very low in waters that comes from snow melt like in California, North California. I think I measured it. The oxygen 18 was around minus 9 to minus 12. And Vancouver was close, minus 12, minus 14, because it's also coming from snow melt. But when the water flood comes to you from a monsoon rain, monsoon rain comes in hot and desiccating conditions. Very hot. So in a very hot climate... The light isotope, oxygen 18, is like like small ball and I have a big ball. And I'm throwing both of them. The small ball like desiccates faster, go away in the air. And the heavier isotope, oxygen 18, rests in the water, comes down. So this is one of the reasons why the oxygen 18 in the Nile water is so high. And I thought that this is in modern time, but uh, a colleague uh, from Florida, I think Tosha Dupral, uh, chair of archaeology there, she actually used that evidence of the high oxygen Nile water to differentiate between people growing along the Nile 
And people who came from the Nile but went for uh, to exile because they had leprosy in the oasis. Because the oasis, they have water coming from closed wells and they have way lower oxygen 18 in their water. Uh, again, like minus 12. And she found that the Egyptians, they have like plus 2 uh, Nile oxygen 18 in the Nile water. So she said, okay, I have here Egyptian population and I have people in the oasis and the people who came from the Nile and ended up in the oasis, their teeth shows where they grow up uh, drinking. Interesting. So it's really more the difference of oxygen 18 versus high levels versus low levels is more significant just in terms of you understanding where people are coming from. Is there any significance in terms of health from that? This is a question that I am still thinking of, but I did not experiment yet. Uh, there is a going on discussion in life sciences that the alkaline water is richer in uh, 18O is good for the uh, membrane of the cells. Our cell membrane is sensitive to the 18O level, the oxygen 18. So uh, that's why here in California, they make advertisement for like alkaline water, etc. But uh, I did not test this yet. But what I want to add that Nile water is naturally, naturally alkaline. So the pH is over 7, 7.8 sometimes and sometimes 8.2. It's like really high. Uh, we can brand Nile water here in California. Why besides the oxygen 18, why else is it so alkaline in the Nile? This is probably again because of the source of the water coming from a monsoon rain. I'm still thinking of the reasons, but it is helpful helpful for for me to write social history because it's easier for me to see where, uh, to say where plant and and food and people come from. So this knowledge that you are really gleaning in such a fascinating and multi-transdisciplinary way. And you mentioned the food now is low in nitrogen compared to in ancient times and probably related to this the dam and, and also the artificial fertilizing that we do. How do you think this relates to the same food that we're eating now compared to then? What are you uh, interpreting this as for our, for our own current situation? For our current situation, we were all tested by the quarantine situation. Suddenly, we have to be at home, no restaurants, and we have to cook ourselves. And here... The healthy choice is not in the hand of the restaurants, but in the hand of every individual in the society. So my role is to, was to summarize my research, for example, in two, three sentences to the public. I volunteered in the kindness task force group, and I was basically like helping families who lost their spouses or dear uh, people during the virus and couldn't even have funeral. So besides the emotional support, I was trying to give the summary of my research. If you at least, at least increase your fiber intake, and if we take the recommendation of Zhang et al. 2019 paper of having 40 grams of fiber, of course, this is difficult for them to understand, but I tell them how I apply it. I said, if you go to Trader Joe's and buy a packet of date, one piece of date is four grams of fiber. So if you have 10 days, like five in your morning in your yogurt or something or a fruit salad and five in, in evening or as a snack, you have your 40 fiber intake and you have a healthy snack. 
But I give example for something meaningful to my culture, like I grew up with. But of course, for them, you may think of other plant species that are rich in fiber and native here to California or America uh, in general. But I just uh, summarize them in simple words as much as possible. And when sometimes they argue about the evidence and how did they know, uh, you know, the relation between the gut microbiota in the past and now, did you go into the stomach of an ancient Egyptian? I say, actually, luckily I do. I have the mummies and uh, sometimes if I don't find the plant remains buried next to them in a pot, I go dig for them inside their stomach or between their teeth. They didn't floss. And all evidence, all evidence from the mummies physically showed fibers, fibers in their bread. Like we could find in the intestines fibers that did not get digested. So this tells us that the bread I discovered in Egyptian tombs and rich in fiber was not processed like uh, fast or un not cleaned well because it will be buried in a tomb, as some archaeologists argued. But now we actually found these fibers inside their stomach. They did not remove the chaff from the bread. And we see association of the diversity of families in their gut microbiota, around 13,000 families of bacteria in their gut. How many families we have in our modern gut with, the, with our overconsumption of processed sugar and processed meat and, and uh, fat? It's around 5,000 families, from 13,000 in the past to 5,000. So see the dramatic decline of the gut microbiota diversity in our stomach because of our modern food habits. So if, if you were to be an ancient Egyptian, how would you comment on our current diet? <laughs> it is really wonderful. I would say stick to your identity food, but also enjoy interactions with other people and their food culture by understanding them and understanding their food. And this is actually the title of my dissertation, The Archaeologies of Diversity and Interaction in Ancient Egypt. What inspired me for the diversity part is first the original diversity. Uh, my mother came from the north. They had different wild fruits than the south, uh, where my dad came from. And there was interaction between both, but also there were new food species that came from Egypt's social interaction with other regions, like in Queen Hatshepsut launched long distance trade to bring incense trees, for example, to make a garden in front of her temple. And in the text shows here that the leaders from the Egyptian side met the leaders from the land of Punt side under the shrine of God Amun and the shared food. So they got introduced to each other's tradition and food. But at the same time, everyone actually, that's interesting. We found evidence of Egyptian wild fruits from Upper Egypt, like this dome fruit and Persia nuts and Balanites dates. Uh, we found them along the ports all the, all the way. So the Upper Egyptian here traveling down to Africa, they dropped like the dead pits that carries marker of their identity that they were there and interacting with other people. Keeping your identity doesn't mean you're close. You still interact and engage. And, and even in the very close intimate context in the food offering, in, like in the tomb, 
people don't just bring in their tombs random life histories, but they bring things that were meaningful to them. So they brought their identity food, they buried it with them, and they also buried the foods they were introduced to by other cultures. Here in this case, I had pomegranate and juniper coming from the Mediterranean, and I had uh, watermelon coming from tropical Africa, and frankincense also coming from tropical Africa. How this was also useful for me during the quarantine, I treated myself many times without going to doctor by food. I brought my samples from the lab and I started to eat some of them. The modern ones, not the ancient. So one time I got the gum infection, I knew that the three species Hatshepsut brought from tropical Africa, one of their uses is having it as a gum, and it is healthy for your, for your gum infection, and actually for your throat. The smell goes down in your throat, and it cleans your lungs. Of course, this is not completely tested in lab, but I'm building on some like educated guesses from published research, better than none. I cannot go to my lab and test the efficiency right now, but at least I have some educated uh, guesses. And what inspired me of this, my mom, before she passed away, when I grew up as a child, she avoided me from eating like this gum full of sugar, processed sugar, and she had me eat this traditional uh, mirror and mastic gums that were actually native, uh, not native to Egypt, but it was one of the most common imports from uh, tropical Africa or East, Southeast Africa since Pharaonic Egypt that Hatshepsut depicted on her wall and made propaganda about interacting with these people. Wow. I think, you know, I have a feeling that you're going to be going in so many different directions in your next phase of your research and your life. And I could see you even being a uh, consultant on the next version of Game of Thrones. (laughs) (laughs) You're full of data and facts and information that they didn't even get into. So before we wrap up, I'd love you to um, tell us what is your dream for the future and where do you hope that your work and research will go and build on? You ask a lot of wonderful questions. And uh, before I actually say this, you and uh, Dr. May, and uh, I should also credit Dr. William McCarthy, were among the most inspiring people I have ever met in not only Fielding School of Public Health, but in, uh, in UCLA, uh, or actually in my life, because it is you, the synergy between the three of you, that opened this whole new way to think of my data completely differently. I was just digging, bringing these plants, identify them botanically, and I say what their significance for history. I never thought that I would even say anything helpful for food scientists, for cancer researchers, uh, like Dr. William McCarthy was in um, Center for Cancer Prevention. So, uh, and my, when my mom actually passed away for cancer and uh, I started to, to connect, my dream was to do anything helpful with archaeology. And you made me feel I found a home for my ideas. Now I can bring the past to serve the present in a way that heals my heart for the loss of my mother to cancer. And I knew the underpinning causes because it was a cancer related to obesity and diabetes. So here, 
in a, in a kind of a divine timing, all the phases I experienced in my life growing up in Egypt and coming to America from Memphis, Egypt to Memphis, Tennessee, and then to UCLA, I felt everything coming in a full circle that makes sense now. Wow. I'm looking forward to seeing and hearing the next steps. And thank yeah. you so much for your kind words. And most of all, your incredible passion and ability to communicate complicated subjects in a way that is digestible and um, relatable. And I hope that maybe we'll be able to find that the nutrients in the soil along the Nile and other places can be rejuvenated to go back to a healthier time so we can grow healthier food. Because I think a lot of people don't realize that even though you might be growing wheat or other foods in, and, and producing it doesn't necessarily mean it's as nutritious as it could be or was in the past. And that's a problem for us, for our current food system. And we need to recover from that. And it's possible. Regenerative practices for soil have been shown to be effective. It just takes patience and time. That is true. And your class was actually my eye opener to this. Ah, oh, fantastic. Well, thank you again. And uh, we're going to uh, post your some of your research on the web for all the listeners that want to learn more and follow your career. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to UCLA Live Well. For more information about today's episode and the resources mentioned, visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu backslash livewellpodcast. Today's podcast was brought to you by the Semmel Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA. To stay up to date with our episodes, subscribe to UCLA Live Well on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get to know us a little better and follow us at Healthy UCLA. If you think you know the perfect person for us to interview next, tweet your idea to us, please. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and we hope you join us for our next episode as we explore new perspectives on health and well-being. <laughs>